Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. After I was unceremoniously thrown out of school, I had little choice but to enlist in the army. Like I mentioned in my episode, The Horsey Bit, I was underage and very naive. The battalion of my choice, the Rhodesian Light Infantry, specifically three commando, was all I ever wanted. Not the SAS, they were too elite. Rhodesia, to my knowledge, had the only official SAS outside of Britain. They had formed during the Malayan campaign in 1951 with the British SAS. Neither did I want to go into the Salu Scouts. I had no desire to creep up to someone in the middle of the night and garrot them. Nor did I have the desire to be a shadow, a spy, a spook. I wanted the lovers, three commanders. Yes, the infantry was cannon fodder. I think they lost more men than any other battalion. But they were exciting, sexy, fun, mad as March hares. They did an incredible job defending the country. They dressed like Vietnam soldiers in the movies, with bandanas and short shorts, and draped in webbing and gun belts. And their green berets were quite simply the hottest thing since sliced bread. That year, the Rhodesian Light Infantry were only taking 25 new recruits, and through some serious begging and kowtowing, I had managed to persuade them to take me in as number 26. Of course, I still needed to prove myself over the next 16 weeks, but with one foot in the barrack room door, I was entirely in my element. Or so I thought. Sometimes I wish I was a blue job up in the sky. I wouldn't have to walk if I could fly. Then I'll be a brown job till I die. For ten years to go in the RLI. Now, I feel I should point out something. The following episode isn't about being gung-ho and all heroic. That's been written and spoken about by people far more qualified, or in some cases, unqualified than me. 
This episode is about my own personal experience and how kids, and we were kids, handled the extreme conditions in an active wartime army. If you're expecting gunfights and fire force, well, you'll be disappointed. So much of life in the army is about boredom, hurry up and wait, and sleep. It also creates unlikely heroes from timid schoolboys and many moments of intense and bizarre and extremely dark humor. There we were, ten of us, right on the cusp of becoming hardened commandos in more ways than one. With only a week away from our much-anticipated passing-out parade, I found myself sitting in a circle of boys on the polished concrete floor of our barrack room, pumping away furiously at our members. Every single one of us had the same thoughts thundering around inside our heads. At what stage, during a circle jerk, Does one ejaculate? Come too early, God forbid. And that could mean you're a bit too keen, if you know what I mean. Which, of course, I was. Arriving too late, on the other hand, might mean you're, well, cock-shy, and that's something equally ridiculed in the barrack room. Besides, I wasn't yet proficient in, how shall we say it, Coitus Reservatus. It was a lesson in intense concentration, nerves of steel, and an inner control that only comes with the joy of youth, or Superman, which is one and the same, really. Daring to open my eyes, I spied the group of lads not yet out of their teens, at the peak of physical fitness, faces glowing with vigour and health and a slight fuzz of hair along the gritted jawlines, their taut, unlined faces red and speckled with beads of sweat from the effort, bodies hard from an exhausting 16-week training course that would begin at 4am each day and end close to midnight, young men too tired to even get a morning glory let alone the time to find release in the cubicles. If you had five minutes to spare, you slept. Where you sat, on your bunk, wherever you were. You did not have sex. Jesus fucking Christ, Kurt said. When was the last time any of you guys had a bone? The small group scattered around the barrack room, Polishing boots or writing letters, looked up in surprise. No, seriously, guys, he said. When did you last have a fucking hard-on? Even a bloody morning glory? We looked at each other. Some laughed in embarrassment. Dunno, said Craig. Come to think of it, I can't remember. Shit, man. It's true, said another. Sheesh, I swear I haven't even had a twinge since we began the course.
<laughs> well, maybe it's the blue stone, giggled one chap, referring to the legendary crystal copper sulfate that was allegedly put into the tea to prevent soldiers from having an overly active libido. Then we were all talking in unison, nodding and agreeing and very aware that not one of us had managed a boner in six weeks. At this age, we should have been having them several times a day, according to the textbooks. An embarrassed silence followed this revelation. We looked at each other, no one daring to notice the elephant in the room. S-E-X. Fuck, man, said Kurt, probably the toughest and hardest and the most handsome of all the recruits. I'm seriously horny. His voice trailed. He pretended to rub an imaginary spot on his mess tin. I lay back against my locker, waiting to see how this would pan out. I knew instinctively that this was not the time to be a leader of the pack. I was the youngest and by no means the weediest, but I had secrets. I had better reason than anyone else to just fade into the amber-sodium glow cast from the corridor light outside. Nothing had ever prepared me for what was about to happen, not at school, not on camping trips along the Neroe, and certainly not in the army. Let's all wank, said Kurt. In a circle, here, in the barrack room, now. It was simple and perfect, and it came from the very embodiment of masculinity and heterosexuality. I was off the hook, albeit on the verge of fainting. Now the complexities and nuances and Etiquette of a circle jerk were something none of us had ever discussed nor experienced before. Well, not me, not even at school. Naturally, there was the noise factor. This was first and foremost in our minds as we settled into our positions. Mm, uh, mm, Shut the fuck up, you tosspot. Most of us were seasoned professionals in the art of wanking silently. On the other hand, too loud meant you were having too much fun. Of course, too little grunting might also mean a suspicious need to prolong the session. And then there was the horror of being caught by an NCO or fellow recruit doing their rounds. Awkward, very, very awkward. There were also technical issues not yet discussed. Quick thinking, knowledge about the diameter created by ten boys, and a vague idea how far one can shoot, or more importantly, marksmanship, which was going to be fundamental to a happy, unembarrassed ending. And as for timing, I think I came fifth. But how did it come to this? In Sergeant Charlie Warren's book, At the Going Down of the Sun, there I was in black and white, Trooper Wood P.W., sandwiched between Olberhauser, F.J., and Hardwick, W.A. 
one of just 33 men to have served with three commando until the very end. This comprised an unlikely smorgasbord of hardened war veterans and the final 15 from our 26-man intake earlier in the year. Oh, and what a year it had been. I had signed away my civilian life and it seemed so easy. I was in the bloody army. One, three, four. One, four, four. Trooper Wood, sir! Well, I wasn't yet a trooper or a troopy, the name given to a private in the Rhodesian army. I was a recruit with a number. The troopy part would come much later after initiation and training, which was expected to last a staggering 16 weeks. I was young. I was exceptionally fit. I could run like 40 bastards. I was driven by a desire to prove to myself and to my father and to my country that I was fit to serve. I was also slap-bang in the middle of an identity crisis, raging through my head, my limbs, my nether regions, like some crazy, never-ending battleground. An identity crisis that was going to require nerves, concentration, and suppression of every natural instinct, other than survival, that I could muster. My timing couldn't possibly have been worse. I mean, the day I got into the army, Rhodesia simply ceased to exist. The humour of enlisting voluntarily into an army to fight a losing battle wasn't lost on me. Of course, I wasn't to know until several days after I enlisted that Mugabe had won the elections. The military has a way of suppressing that kind of thing. Rumours filtered in, but never seemed to take hold among the thousands of recruits at Llewellyn Barracks. If anything, there was just total confusion from how to make a fucking bed fit for inspection or what exactly spit and polishing your boots meant. Well, it means just that. I felt that I'd stepped back in time to my first few days at boarding school. Nothing was familiar or recognisable. Young men seemed to be running everywhere with panicked looks upon their faces. And absolutely everyone was getting shat upon. My father instilled a terror in us through his timbre and use of English. But the army was a whole new kettle of fish. Paired back, it revealed a raw, ancient method of quickly reducing a man down to the last common denominator. I got my first taste of drill. I realized for the first time that I had two left feet. I learned very rapidly that bunks were not to be slept in, but admired from below on the cold concrete floor. The stories about polishing bed springs is all true that eyes were to stare straight forward regardless of who was screaming at you, that my mother was blessed like the Virgin Mary. The only curse not allowed in the army was son of a bitch. You're a fucking nothing. You're the lowest fucking person on earth. You're as low as shark shit. In fact, 
you little pricks. You're even lower than shark shit. You recruits are the sand that the sharks shit on. Brace up, recruits, you little cunts. And what are you looking at, you little fucker? I'm going to pluck your fucking arm off and shove it up your ass and wave you around like a fucking toffee apple. Oof, they liked that one. Of course, all of this is yelled two and a half inches away from your face, the spittle spraying your forehead, the NCO's moustache tickling your chin, your eyes staring ahead, through the instructor, beyond, to an imaginary place, another world, another life, a life of boarding school, being a senior, like being a big fish in a small pond, now reduced to the sand, that sharks shit on. It was a terrible shock. Everything was new to me. At the time I joined, the Rhodesian army was made up of more than 60% black volunteers, many of whom had never seen a flush toilet, and they all mixed with us at Llewellyn. That was alien to me. But the ablution blocks were, without a doubt, some of the most disgusting I've ever encountered, what with thousands of recruits passing through them daily. The punishment for sleeping on top of your bed, not under staring up at the wire springs, and thus not passing inspection, would more often than not lead to a vomit-inducing clean-up muster in the toilets. Simply put, Llewellyn Barracks was a hellhole. It was designed purely as a recruitment depot for all the different battalions of the Rhodesia Regiment. It was designed to bring those cocky high school boys to heel. Everyone from potential officers to grease monkeys came through that place. If anything, it encouraged me to try harder, to run harder, to raise my arms to shoulder height during drill, to stamp my heel harder when saluting, to shout, yes, sir, or barrack room shun louder. Getting selected for the Rhodesian Light Infantry, commonly known as the Saints, was absolutely and beyond a doubt the most important thing for me right at that moment. Nothing else mattered. And not just the RLI, but three commando, the lovers. And a lover I became. Against the odds, I was selected as the 26th recruit in a year when only 25 were being picked. So admittedly, by sheer luck. We automatically became members of an elite group, singled out from the rest of the rabble. Make no mistake, we were still low life. But now, safely back in our battalion HQ in Salisbury, away from the overflowing latrines and scared, sweaty crowds and smells and small-minded, red-capped MPs, I could finally get some semblance of who I was, why I left school, and why I signed up and wrote off a year of my life. To hang in the 
It was also a time to reflect, to step up as a man, and to step back as a gay boy. Anything I felt about myself was gently placed on the back burner for a later time in life. Quietly simmering away, but unnoticed. In the rural areas, the war continued unabated, almost as if the elections had never happened. It was as if Mugabe, our sworn enemy, was not prime minister. It would take up to six months for the soldiers from Zipra and Zanla to lay down their arms, and ahead of us there was a job to be done. I was embarking on a training regime considered one of the hardest, not only in Africa, but globally a course that was going to turn a soft, pampered schoolboy into a commando. A course that was no different to any of those taken by my predecessors. In fact, as far as the RLI was concerned, Mugabe hadn't even won. For the Rhodesia Regiment, it was business as usual. The army is a very grown-up place, the polar opposite of school. The shouted abuse becomes commonplace, almost dull. The hours of parades, saluting, stamping, slow marching, presenting arms, inspections, leopard crawling beneath barbed wire under live fire, and the aches and pains all become a means to an end. The hurry-up-and-wait attitude. You just suck it up. That sprained ankle? Move on, buddy. It's far better to stamp your foot when saluting and just bear the agonizing pain shooting up your leg than go to sick parade and have to walk around the barracks with a white Second World War helmet with a red cross emblazoned on the front. You call that a salute? Stamp harder, recruit. Yes, sir. Shashuk. You call that a goddamn stamp? Stamp hard, I recruit! Yes, sir! Shastonk! If you do not give me a proper salute, I will have you sent to the box. Now salute! Use your heel, not your toes, you little drip! Stonk! Well, that's better. The agony coursing through your body keeps your comrades happy for now. If one recruit fails, all recruits fail. It is the few stolen moments of fun, camaraderie, hilarity, real danger, and cocking around that tends to make life in the army bearable, and friendship, love almost. You're trained day in and day out to work as a unit, a well-oiled machine. As a single man, you're nothing. As a group, you are unbeatable, a killing machine. If one man falls, you all go down with him. Or you pick him up again and again, hating him, cursing him, wanting him dead for making you work harder. It's tough love. We were all there at some stage and we all fell. We were all picked up time and time again. You walk March, salute, run, sing as a unit. You sleep side by side and you learn that your brother-in-arms is the most important person 
in the entire universe. No one else matters. No one is deeper than love, stronger than desire, more intense than hatred. You will quite literally die for each other. It's as simple as that. I love the army for that very tenet, that they can take a boy and not just mould him into a man, but make him into an organism that works as one and will die as one. It might sound corny, but it also creates friendships that border upon love, a love that is complex and masculine, yet beautiful in its simplicity. Homosexuality didn't come into the equation. Tenderness could turn into a black rage within minutes, urged on by exhaustion and discomfort. Those that could not fit in simply went AWOL. If one weakness in the chain was discovered, it was better for the unit that the broken link should be extricated, encouraged to slip away quietly into the night. No one was looking out for them. No MPs would search for them. The guards were asked to turn a blind eye. It was simply survival of the fittest. One of the most horrible, psychologically fucked up and degrading exercises during the training was, without a doubt, that of bayonet drill, an exercise as old as the British Army itself. Simply put, it taught young freshmen to hate the enemy as much as they could and kill as many of them as possible. Bayonet drill might sound dull and boring. It begins after breakfast and continues all day. Fixed bayonets charging again and again at hessian sacks filled with straw and placed on poles. The men are encouraged to make horrible, blood-curdling screams as they thrust and twist their bayonets into the targets, charging, screaming, baring their teeth, staggering, falling, getting up, charging, screaming. And all the time, the instructor's grim faces bearing down upon you, smiling, more like a ghastly grimace. Kill him! Kill the fucker! Come on, you little fuckers! Charge! Tear his bloody guts out! Rip open that belly again! Do it again, you little bastard! Thrust! Upper swing! Into his ghoulies! Tear out his bollocks! Charge! Do it again! As the sacking disintegrated, new sacks were called for. More charging, more screaming. All around me, Grown men were crying, on their knees, unable to move further. Get the fuck up, Wilson, we would shout. One man down would mean all men punished. Come on, you can't get off your bloody knees. Oh, man, here, give me your hand, you wanker. On and on, again and again. Right, you lazy buggers, do it again. Wilson, you fucked up. Everyone, back to the beginning. By evening, our voices had grown quiet, rasping. There was little to say anyway. Few people could get their vocal cords to work. Our arms had seized up, our legs were jelly. 
We had casualties and we knew we'd pay for it. Pay for not keeping our unit intact. The first time it happened, it took us by surprise. Naturally, we had been told by other soldiers of the infamous Barrackroom Parade, but nothing prepared us for it. Barrackroom Parade. The exhaustion from the bayonet drill earlier in the day and then the sudden confusion of being woken at 2am by the instructors and corporals. Barrackroom, shun! Lights on everywhere, distant shouting and screaming as your brain tries to engage. Then the sudden shock of having your bed, your locker, and all of its contents thrown on top of you. And the worst part? Being told that you have half an hour to carry the entire contents of the barrack room, beds, steel lockers, clothes, equipment, the works, across the barracks to the parade ground a thousand yards away. We were to have an inspection our beds made and our lockers tidied in exactly the same way and the same order as it should be inside the barrack room. No one was ever really expected to pass barrack room parade. That wasn't the point of the exercise. It was to degrade you, bring you down a peg, teach you to work as a team and then to build you up piece by shattered piece so that when they say kill... You kill, without thought, without guilt, without hesitation. We were pit bulls in training. The second time we had barrack room parade, my youth finally got the better of me. The other lads were all two years older than me. They had the extra time to build up muscles and strength. Carrying my tall steel locker across the yard was, quite frankly, my Waterloo. Recruit Smith on the other end of the locker was helping me, my teammate. My shoulder muscles went first, then my thighs. I fell again and again, bringing both the locker and Smith tumbling down on top of me. Time and again he helped me up. Time and again I fell. I can't do it, Smitty. I just can't fucking do it. Get up, Wood! Don't you fucking dare think about quitting. I haven't got the strength. I swear my hands are cut to the bone from the fucking steel. I'm stuffed, Smitty. Then we'll all be fucked, you little wanker. Get off your ass now. It hurt. Smith was one of my heroes and a Prince Edward school old boy. His harsh words bit into me. From somewhere deep within, I managed to haul myself up and with the help of Smith carry the locker, the bed, and all of his gear too, onto the parade ground in time for inspection. Then we had to take it back again, into the barrack room, ready for morning inspection. By Revali at sunrise, a Kiwi recruit who had been dragging us down in the past fortnight was gone. It could have been me, but encouragement and resilience had managed to give me a second life. For the Kiwi, the message was all too clear. He was a skyver. That was unforgivable.
We surrounded him in the barrack room. I don't know who took the first swipe. I do remember the terror in his eyes, the confusion, then the understanding. It wasn't even his war, but we punched anyway, like savages, each taking two or three swipes, then hanging back, taking a breath, then going in for more. It was awful. I wanted to shout out to stop it. I expect everyone else felt the same. These were not animals. These were my comrades. For our small band of brothers to survive, the Kiwi had to go. By morning he was reported AWOL and the savagery of the previous night forgotten. The Kiwi had gone. We had done it. Naturally it drew all of us closer. The smaller the group got, the closer knit we became. The RLI was nicknamed the Saints, or the Incredibles, and regarded, through astounding success, with both internal fire force operations in Rhodesia and external preemptive strikes against guerrillas based in Mozambique and Zambia, as one of the world's foremost exponents of counterinsurgency warfare. The three commando insignia became a numeral three emblazoned on a banana with the word lovers above and the designation commando beneath it, all on a green shield. I was never to find out exactly why the banana, but perhaps it referred to the lovers. As far back as I could recall, I wanted to be part of this fighting unit called The Lovers. I wanted to sing when the saints go marching in with gusto as we drove through the centre of town to the excited cheers of the schoolgirls. We hardly noticed the sullen faces of the black workers. In short, I wanted all the glamour and glory. But to get there, I still needed to get to the end of training. RLI training covered standard infantry counterinsurgency as well as conventional warfare such as digging trenches, which we loathed. We had daily assault courses to get over. I loved these and found myself in the commando assault course team against the other Rhodesian battalions. We won! as well as commando training such as watermanship, rock climbing, abseiling, unarmed combat, bushcraft, survival, tracking, demolitions and helicopter drills. We also, unbelievably, started to have fun. One of the favourite training exercises was at the Ngezi Dam in the Midlands, a part of the country I was unfamiliar with. It was a relatively dry region, given mostly to ranching, but quite beautiful and very wild. The entire training troop would camp out at the dam. For us new recruits, it was exciting to see how an army moves and marches on its stomach. The canteens would produce outstanding grub in the open under the masasa trees and among the granite rocks. Much of the training involved water sports, kayaking and canoeing, and of course swimming. 
It surprised us that the inspectors would keep hurling thunder flashes into the water around us. These heavy-duty fireworks could burn underwater and let off a ripping bang strong enough to rupture a kidney. We believed that they were doing it to give us some form of battle realism. We were wrong. This we would find out the hard way. Recruits would pair up and form bivouacs by digging shallow trenches, stretching our ground sheets over like a roof. There was enough room to squeeze two men inside, it was cosy to say the least, and spooning one another was quite acceptable behaviour. It was nearly winter and the mornings could be very cold. One group of seemingly rugged lads decided to pitch their bivouacs on a spit of land a hundred yards or more away from the main group. By daylight it looked like a good position, but that night the boys were woken to a grim surprise. At first they heard a slithering, followed by a scraping. A strong, fishy odour permeated the bivouacs. It seemed to be coming from all around their tents. One chap finally had the sense to peep out of his bivy, and there, just a couple of feet from his head, was a huge black crocodile. Then his eyes adjusted and saw the rest. Ten, maybe twenty crocs had chosen this very spot to sleep or to hunt. At first the scream sounded distant, like a dream. Then they began penetrating our sleepy heads. We all jolted upright, a mass of tangled guy ropes and tarps and sleeping bags and cocked weapons. What the fuck, someone shouted. Then we were all laughing, uncontrollably holding our bellies. By the silver light of the autumn moon, the leaping, howling, scrambling silhouettes of our comrades could be seen on the long spit of land as they ran half-naked through a corridor of snapping, splashing reptiles. None of the instructors had informed us that Ngezi Dam was used for crocodile research and reputedly had the biggest population of the reptiles per square mile in southern Africa. The rugged boys spent the rest of the night cowering down beside the canteen, their sleeping bags and tents, now property of the monster crocodiles. No wonder the thunder flashes. Losing a recruit to a croc would have been unfortunate. The trainers would often become as proud of and as close to the recruits as we were to one another. They became father figures to us. I expect one or two recruits might have had even a secret liaison with an instructor, but never with an officer, not to my knowledge anyway. Of course, I was jealous as hell, green with envy, explosive with lust. One particular non-sporty recruit seemed to have taken a shine to one very handsome instructor from South Africa. The recruit would spend many an hour in the instructor's room, polishing his boots. I was insane with anger, particularly when we were outside dragging our mattresses up and down the corridors to get that surreal shine on the floor. But lust 
was never on the menu. I knew that. Many of these guys had seen action both in our own bush war and also in Vietnam. I knew what they were capable of when shit-faced. Love was possible, I suppose, in an ethereal and intangible way, but lust was out. And so it confused us one night down at Ngezi when the instructors called us all out of our bivouacs and made us line up for parade in front of their fire, completely naked. We were instructed to go behind the canteen, remove every item of clothing except our weapons, and return to the fireside, salute, and stand at attention, in line, shouldering our semi-automatic rifles. One, three, four, one, four, four, Trooper Wood, sir! The instructors sat in deck chairs, beers in their hands, watching as each recruit came before them, stamped their foot in the dust, dick flopping about, then shuffled into line with their comrades. It was like some seedy, weird porn movie. After a brief inspection, they just dismissed us. The confused, silent, naked parade returned to their bivvies, and it was never mentioned again. But that night, I had my first wet dream. Of the 26 boys in the three commando training troop, five of us were singled out to do a medic course. This was done at a remote camp on the Zambezi River where we spent an utterly blissful 10 days swimming in the river, lounging on the sandbanks, and of course, learning about medical aid. We used each other as pincushions for cannulas and ringers lactate drips, learning the ABCs of first aid, how to staunch a gunshot wound, how to detect brain damage, how to save a life, and also how to allow a man to die with dignity. The medic instructions were casual, fun, and completely different from the trainers back at headquarters. When they found out that my father was at a hunting camp only a few hundred yards down the river, they allowed my mates and me to wander over and surprise him. No one was in the camp when we arrived, but having grown up with the cook boy, we settled down in the deck chairs and were fed snacks and beers. By the time my dad returned from his day's hunting, he found five rather inebriated and lively soldiers lounging around his camp. But the joy and happiness I saw in his face when he recognised me, his little boy all grown up in camouflage and carrying a rifle, was worth all the effort of leaving school and going into the army. It was the first time he had seen me since leaving school. That was the moment I knew my father loved me. Following our passing out parade and having been integrated into three commando as fully-fledged troopers, we often found ourselves at a loose end. The action down at the sharp end didn't materialise in the fashion that we had been led to believe, 
Yet with a battalion full of hard-ass soldiers, many back from the war, not to mention us young recruits raring to go, the officers quite rightly felt that it would be good policy to keep us all occupied. Weeks of training and preparation to fight were followed by days of idleness. Hurry up and wait became the norm. If you're interested to find out what happened next, why not tune into my next episode, The Saints, The End of an Era. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.